You're muted, John. Right, so am I coming through now? Can you hear me? Excellent, great, okay. Right, let's read the six verses we've got to read tonight. This is a difficult passage we've got tonight, folks, because, um, well, two reasons really, I suppose. Uh, first, as we said the other week, uh, reading Galatians, Tom Wright said this, is like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. You know, there are lots of arguments and things going on in the background that you don't really understand because you don't hear the argument, you just hear the answer to it. And Galatians is obviously written at white hot speed anyway, so sometimes you get pretty dense passages and this is one of them. Um, that's one reason it's difficult. The other one is that in, in, in uh, verse 20, you've got one of the best known verses in the New Testament. And uh, the, the verse about being crucified for Christ gets quoted all over the place. You don't find the other verses around it quoted quite so much. And to see how it all fits together um, takes a bit of thinking about. So we're going to work through it quite uh, uh, cautiously tonight. But let's, let's have a, a, a read of the verses anyhow. Um, let's start a little bit before you remember that uh, uh, in verse 11, Peter came to Antioch and stopped uh, eating with the Gentiles when some other people came up from Jerusalem who didn't agree with that. And so Paul uh, confronted him. Verse 14, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? That's where we've got to. So tonight, uh, starts in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Or it could be, I live by the faithfulness of the son of God, and Paul probably means both of those things, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Well, it's quite a short reading, but there's an awful lot in it, and uh, we're going to have to unpick it quite carefully. I suppose the first question you have to ask about this passage, really, come on, you're doing it, is... Paul has an argument with Peter. Peter is refusing to eat meals with the Gentile Christians. He was doing that fine before. After all, he was the one who was sent to see Cornelius, you remember, in Acts chapter 10. And uh, God said to him, what we've, I've called clean, don't you call unclean? And so he'd been doing things with the, the Gentiles that uh, Jews didn't normally do. You see, in Paul's day and Peter's day, uh, Gentiles, uh, Jews sorry, were not allowed to travel with Gentiles. You know, you couldn't sit in opposing seats on the same bus, assuming there were buses, which there weren't. You couldn't travel on a boat with them or anything like that. You couldn't enter a business partnership with them. In fact, you couldn't do a business deal with them, which is why you had a network of Jewish family businesses all over the place that had nothing to do with the Gentiles. 
and uh, you couldn't certainly go into a house and have a meal with them. So Peter had started doing some of those things because he didn't believe it was wrong anymore. However, um, when these guys came up the road from uh, Jerusalem and he knew they were keeping an eye on what he was doing and they'd be going back to James and the elders in Jerusalem saying, you know what Peter was doing in Antioch? I'm not sure we agree with this completely, are we? So uh, Peter starts being a hypocrite and Paul steps in and I opposed him to his face, he says. He was clearly wrong. Now, obviously, in the Christian world, and you know this as well as I do, if you have a disagreement with somebody, the scriptural principle is that you don't have it out with them in front of other people. You remember Matthew chapter 18? If your brother has something against you or you have something against your brother, you try to sort it out just the two of you. If it escalates then and you have to bring in somebody else and then people you trust and so on, and finally the whole church, well, you go through those stages, but you do that reluctantly. However, here you find Paul going up to Peter and say, son, you're wrong. Sorry, but you're wrong in front of everybody else. Why? Because it's such an important principle. It's vital that uh, Peter sees that what he's doing is just sheer hypocrisy. And if he carries on that way, it's going to deny something absolutely central to the Christian faith. So first problem we have with this passage is uh, Paul is arguing with Peter. Where does he stop telling Peter off? Where does that happen? And you'll find different translations and different commentators have different ideas about this. There are basically three candidates. First, that he finishes at the end of verse 14 and that everything after verse 14, which is where you finished last week, is a commentary on what he actually said to Peter. Or it could be verse 16. And he finishes at the end of verse 16 and then verse 17 onwards is commentary. Or it could be that the whole of the rest of the chapter is what he said to Peter. And that certainly seems to be what the NIV thinks, because if you look at the inverted commas, uh, they don't finish until the end of verse 21. Well, we don't know for sure. But uh, I think it's probably not verse 14, because if you see, he goes on in verse 15 to say, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. As far as we know, the Galatians weren't all Jewish. <laughs> And so it sounds much more as if he's talking to Peter at that point and say, come on, you're Jewish, I'm Jewish. We should know more than anybody else that this is not the right behaviour. And uh, we'll look into what that means in a minute. So I don't think it's verse 14, nor do I think it's verse 21, because if you look at what happens from verse 17 onwards, he's not talking about the same things that he's got against Peter. He's moving on from that to develop a slightly different argument and explore different questions. So for my money, what he says to Peter ends at the end of verse 16. Doesn't matter, but suppose it goes that way. This is, this is how it'd work out. Um, here's verses 14 and, and, and 15 together. Um, uh, so uh, this is what uh, was in the passage last time when he gets up to the question, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? And then verses 15 and 16, he's still talking to Peter. We who are Jews by birth know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. What's he saying here? Well, it seems to me that if you want to uh, paraphrase what he said, he's saying something like this. Peter, you're a Jew like me. And we should know more than anybody else on the planet that keeping the law doesn't make us right with God. It never has. We've tried for centuries, Peter. Your fathers, your ancestors, my ancestors. And none of us has kept the law. There is none righteous. No, not one. 
And we've had centuries of experience of trying to, to, to do right and stay righteous with God on the basis of our works. And all we end up is, is the book of Ecclesiastes saying, there is not a man on earth who always does what is right and never sins. We know that far more than the Gentiles do. And so that, he says, is why we put our trust in Jesus. Don't you remember that? We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, this is verse 16, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because we know that doesn't work. Now, for my money, this is where he finishes talking to Peter. And uh, let's give Peter full credit. He listened. He took it on board. And although Paul doesn't say anything about it here, he obviously said, yep, you're right, Paul. I've been in the deal. I'm sorry about that. I will go out and invite my Gentile friends to have a beef burger straight away. Something like that. Because it didn't cause a crisis. It didn't cause a rift in the church. And people who say, oh, Peter and Paul were at loggerheads for the rest of their lives. It's not true. They work closely together. And you'll find in Second Peter, at the end of Second Peter, that Peter talks about Paul's letters and says there are things in them that are difficult to understand. But he calls them scripture. They're actually the word of God. So Peter and Paul recognize one another and Peter clearly backed down on this occasion and uh, Paul won the day. That was such an important point. He had to do that. So that's the first thing that this passage says. And uh, then I think it moves on because Paul can see the Galatians coming back at him with something else. And this is where we get the next verse. Now, this is verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners. Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? And here is a picture of a Galatian drawn to scale, trying to be very Jewish and keep all the Jewish law. And what he might say to Paul is this. That's all very well, Paul. But as far as I can see, Christians are still sinful people. You just don't feel sinful. You don't because you've managed to convince yourself that Jesus has abolished the law. That makes it nice and comfortable for you, doesn't it? So your Jesus is actually making people more sinful than they were before. That can't be right. You're able to break all of the laws of the Old Testament and still call yourself justified with, by God. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so Paul comes back at that in that verse. That's the argument I think that he's opposing there. And he says, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. What does that mean? Well, I think Paul would answer this. Well, of course we're sinners. We're forgiven. We're not perfected. I didn't claim to be doing everything absolutely right. I'm a work in progress. And uh, Paul says to the Philippians, doesn't he, that the one who has begun a good work in us will continue it right through the, to the day of his appearing. <laughs> in other words, as long as you're alive here on earth and Jesus has not come back, there is work to be done on you. <laughs> We're all just a work in progress. We can't claim to be right on the basis of our works. And he says the problem is what these Galatians are doing in their argument is trying to smuggle the law back into the argument. What you're trying to do, he says, is to rebuild a system of rules that doesn't apply anymore. You're judging Christian Gentiles and Christian Jews who don't eat kosher food and don't circumcise their children and so on by the old rules. And he says, look, if you build that system again, then obviously we all hit the floor. You do as well, because none of us can keep the law perfectly. And you're trying to rebuild a system that doesn't apply any longer because the law has passed away. 
Now, this is a point that Paul makes somewhere else as well. If you read Romans chapter seven, for example, he talks about the, the fact that a the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Once you're dead, the law doesn't apply to you any longer. You can't uh, dig up a corpse out of the, the graveyard and paint it and say, hey, you haven't paid your taxes in the last 20 years. We're going to send you to prison. That would be a bit ridiculous for two reasons. First, you might smell a bit, you might decompose somewhat. And second, the law has no, no impact on his life. He's dead. The law no longer applies. And so he says in Romans 7, thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Anthea, stop looking at me like that. Anyhow, um, accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. And then he goes on to say, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So the law doesn't apply anymore. This is the um, examination schools at Oxford University, where I once sat my exams, and you can see that bunch of unfortunate people outside are just waiting for the signal from inside, and then they'll all stream through, up the marbled hall, up the staircase, uh, the exam has started the moment the, the, the bell goes, but you don't rush because this is Oxford, you know, you stroll upstairs discussing the cricket and then you sit down and do your exam and you have to wear that uniform all the way through. Now, it might not look too heavy looking at it there, but take my word for it. After you have sat for an hour writing an essay with this thing pressing down on your shoulders, it's horrendous. And uh, there is a legend at Oxford University, I don't know if it's true or not, that if you turn up in full subfusk, the full uniform, including everything, the cap, the gown, the lot, you are entitled at any point in the exam to stand up and demand beer and sandwiches. I have never tried that. <laughs> it was a temptation, but I thought, no, 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 let's just do the exam and pass my degree instead. And there is a story, again, I don't know if it's true, it's probably apocryphal, that uh, once somebody did that, and he stood up and loudly demanded beer and sandwiches in the middle of the exam. And uh, they consulted the regulations and thought, well, yep. So they brought him his beer and his sandwiches. But afterwards, they said, you failed the exam because you didn't turn up in full subfusk. He said, why? What are you talking about? They said, well, according to the rules, you should have been wearing a sword as well. <laughs> So that's, that's, that's a rule that uh, may still exist or may not, but it's got no application really on most people who go through those doors. It's, it's a rule that's died out years and years ago. If people ever thought about beer and sandwiches in the exam, they certainly don't do it now. This is um, the military parade day uh, in uh, Moscow in 2015. As you can see, they have quite a few soldiers, lots of bombs, lots of uh, tanks and, and armaments and lots of planes. And you'd be very foolish to go to war with Russia. However, there is a story that until recently they did. This is Berwick on Tweed, <laughs> the town where the northern shore on the northern side of the Tweed is actually in Scotland and the southern side is in England. And in the 1850s, when England went to war with Russia, or Britain went to war with Russia in the Crimean War, nobody was quite sure whether Berwick-on-Tweed was in Scotland or in England. And so the declaration of war was made in the name of England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and Berwick-on-Tweed. However, three years later, when they signed the peace treaty, 
they forgot to include Berwick on Tweed. So for the last century, Berwick on Tweed has been technically at war with Russia. And it was only sorted out in the 1960s, apparently, when a peace treaty between Berwick and Tweed and Russia was signed. At that point, Robert Cox, the, the mayor of Berwick on Tweed, said, you can tell the Russian people that they may now sleep safely in their beds. <laughs> and uh, of course, it's, it's, it's all ridiculous, isn't it? Because like the beer and sandwiches one, it's a rule that no longer applies, that nobody takes seriously. We are dead to that old rule. And there was never any uh, risk that uh, Russian jets would drop bombs on Berwick on Tweed, even less risk that Berwick on Tweed jets would drop bombs on Russia. So laws can go out of date. And that's what Paul is saying it applies to us. And he says, here's how it works. This is verses 19 to 20 now. He says, if I build up that system again, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. It doesn't work to my advantage. It just shows that I'm guilty and before God. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So it's like this. Because of the law, I'm dead. The law says you're hopeless. You can't get anywhere. You will never be right with God because you just don't keep it. Uh, prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 28 says the soul that sins, it shall die. And that's the end of the story. But the thing is, I'm dead in another way because I believe in Jesus, because I've trusted him, because Jesus died for me on the cross. Then what happened to him is what now applies to me. And Jesus didn't just die on the cross. The cross led to the resurrection. And on the cross, Jesus triumphed over the, all the powers of sin and death. He put them in their place forever. He won a decisive victory. And so if Jesus' death applies to me, so does Jesus' resurrection. And if Jesus died for me, I live in him. And this is what Christians uh, for at least 100 years now have called the story of the exchanged life. I'm guilty. He takes my sin. I'm dead. He gives me his life. And... Uh, you may have seen the, the old uh, illustration where uh, the preacher says, look, um, uh, imagine that this is you and God is there and your sin separates you from God. Jesus is the only person who lived. He was completely sinless, didn't have that barrier. He had a open access to his father because although he was a human being, he was a sinless son of God. There was no sin problem for him. What happened on the cross simply was that the problem changed hands. Jesus took your sin on himself. And so for three awful hours on the cross, he was separated from his father. He knew what hell was like. And that, of course, is why he, he quotes the Psalms and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time since, the, since before the dawn of time, the son of God, who'd lived in eternal, unbroken communion with his father, knew what it was to be cut off from that relationship. And that, let's face it, is the definition of hell, where God isn't. And if you're cut off from the very presence of God, you go out literally going through hell on behalf of other people. How about those other people? Well, there's no further problem. And so you have taken their sin so that they 
can start to enter into the risen life that you are going to give them once you've risen again. It was impossible for death to hold Jesus. You will not suffer your Holy One to see corruption. And so as Jesus rises again, I who have died in him also rise in him. And that is what baptism is all about, isn't it? When you go into the water, that's like death. Because to the Jews who were not great sailors, <laughs> water was a symbol of death. And so you go down into the water, dead in Christ. You go under the water, buried in him. And then, unless it's an awful accident, you come up out of the other side. And that's shaking off the water, rising to newness of life in Christ. And so Paul says, this is what happens. The life which I now live, I am not really living any longer. It's not the old me who's alive. It's Jesus who is alive in me. And so all the power and the riches and, and, and the authority of the Son of God are at my disposal as I live in him. So the, the great exchange is taking place. Um, this guy here looks like uh, someone who um, uh, is very Chinese. In actual fact, he came from Barnsley. <laughs> and one of the things that interests people in Yorkshire at the moment is that they get lots of Chinese tourists turning up on the doorstep trying to find where J. Hudson Taylor actually was born. And uh, they started a small museum now because nobody in Barnsley was too interested in him up until fairly recently. But now loads and loads of Chinese people are beating a path to Barnsley to see, see his, his, his birthplace. Why? Well, because they're Christians. And J. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, was one of the most important people in Chinese Christian history. The reason it was called the China Inland Mission was because up until his day in the 19th century, all of the missionaries who'd gone to China, which is a pretty big place, as you know, had stuck around the coast and had laid, made little communes of Christians around the coast. Nobody had gone into the vast interior of China with a Christian message. And Hudson Taylor, very like what we were saying this morning about getting past cultural barriers, decided that if you were going to reach the Chinese effectively, you had to become pretty much Chinese yourself. This is why he's dressed the way he is. This is why you can't see it, but down, <coughs> down the back of his head, there is hanging a very long pigtail because that was a sign of virility and manliness to the Chinese and people with short hair were never going to be listened to whatever gospel they came with. And so he and his, his, his mission started becoming as Chinese as he possibly could. Great man did fantastic work, turned the whole situation around in China. And uh, if the Chinese church is as powerful and big as it is uh, in the world at the moment, that's all because of Hudson Taylor. And I believe that what the Chinese government is doing at this moment is so dangerous to the rest of the world. God in his providence has allowed that church to become the biggest church in the world simply because we need them. They're the salt in a desperate situation. And it's all down to this guy. And those Chinese people would gladly admit that as they beat a path to Barnsley. However, Hudson Taylor, great Christian though he was, was very conscious of the failings in his life. And he wrote a very famous letter to his sister from China on the 17th of October in 1869, which has been reproduced in booklets all over the place. I'm going to quote a little bit from it, not the whole thing by any means, but you can find it on the internet if you Google it. And it is well worth reading. He says this. Well, dearie, my mind has been greatly exercised for six or eight months past, feeling the need personally and for our mission of more holiness, more life, more power in our souls. But personal need stood first and was the greatest. 
He felt his own failings very deeply. I felt the ingratitude, the danger, the sin of not living nearer to God. I prayed, agonized, fasted, strove, made resolutions, read the word more diligently, sought more time for retirement and meditation, but always without effect. Every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. And while you're still living in the bondage of the law, you can feel that way. I'm no good. Jesus may have forgiven me, but inside I'm still the same person. I'm still a rebel. I'm still a sinner. I will never be any different. When my agony of soul was at its height, he said, a sentence in a letter from dear McCarthy, that's John McCarthy, a, a, a colleague of, of, of his and a, a fellow missionary in China, a letter from dear McCarthy had a sentence in it which was used to remove the scales from my eyes. And the Spirit of God revealed the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. McCarthy, who had been much exercised by the same sense of failure but saw the light before I did, wrote, and I quote from memory, but how to get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. As I read, he says, I saw it all. Oh, my dear sister, it is a wonderful thing to be really one with a risen and exalted saviour, to be a member of Christ. Think what it involves. Can Christ be rich and I poor? Can your right hand be rich and the left poor? Or your head be well fed when your body starves? The sweetest part, if one may speak of one part being sweeter than another, is the rest which full identification with Christ brings. I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize this, for he I know is able to carry out his will and his will is mine. Just one more little bit. This is how he, he uh, almost end, ends the letter. I am no better than before. May I not say in a sense, I do not wish to be, nor am I striving to be, but I am dead and buried with Christ. I and risen too and ascended. And now Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, Galatians 2 verse 20, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am as capable of sinning as ever. But Christ is realized as present as never before. And further, walking more in the light, my conscience has been more tender. Sin has been infinitely seen, instantly seen, confessed, pardoned, in peace and joy with humility instantly restored and uh, that letter is still preserved and it's read many times and it's helped millions of people all over the world because that was a real turning point in his life realizing it didn't depend on him it depended on jesus now he knew that in theory he'd been a christian for years he'd been teaching that message in china for years but the whole business about resting in jesus realizing that the life you live in the flesh is not your life anymore it's Jesus who's living it through you and just giving him authority to do that. It's a lesson that we sometimes need to learn again and again until it sticks. And that's what Paul's talking, talking about here. The automatic instinct of human beings as they try to approach God is to make themselves better, to do something that will impress God and, and, and make him love them more. But as, as you've often heard quoted, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. He couldn't love you more than he does. And so you can't, you, you can't make him 
impressed with you or, or whatever, all you can do, because he knows what a rotten deal he got when he got you, is to rest in Jesus and allow Jesus' life to flow through you. And so the exchange life is me stopping trying and saying, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I need you to come and live through me. Otherwise, you know, I'm never going to be any different from what I am. And this is why Paul is so fiercely determined to combat Peter's hypocrisy and establish this principle once and for all, because he wants to, to make it absolutely clear that's where it all comes from. So he says in the final verse, I do not set aside the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness can be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And the only reason that Christ's death has any value is because it does something that the law could never do. I can never make myself straight with God, even for five minutes on the basis of my achievements. And so Paul says, whatever you believe, this is one vital thing you've got to hang on to. Don't set aside the grace of God. What does that Greek word mean? Well, simply this. It's the word atheteo, which means to do away with what has been laid down, to set it aside. And as you go on through Galatians, you'll find that this is something Paul is desperately worried about for these churches. You remember in the series on Acts, we've traced how he went into Galatia first of all, after he'd been in Cyprus on his first missionary journey, because the uh, Roman official on Cyprus who, who became a Christian through him had family uh, in Antioch and Pisidia. And so that whole group of churches were some of the first ones that Paul led to Christ. And uh, he's terrified now that they're going to lose it all because people have been coming in their midst saying, no, you've got to keep the whole Jewish law. If you don't keep the whole Jewish law, God is not pleased with you. You will lose your salvation. And, and, and Paul is saying, listen, don't set aside the grace of God. Don't let that go because this is the heart of the whole thing. The word means to do away with what has been laid down, to set it on one side and have nothing to do with it anymore. So six short verses to untangle. And we've seen, I think, four principles in them. Let me just remind you of those as we finish. Verses 15 to 16, where he's, he's um, still talking to Peter. He says, listen, the principle is you will never be made right with God by keeping the law. It cannot happen. So, Peter, don't be a hypocrite. Don't live in two different worlds, the Jewish world and the Christian world. Realize that the reason we came to Christ in the first place was because he was the only way uh, to being right with God. In verses 17 to 18, he anticipates that question that they might be asking. Well, you know, if, if you're a Christian and you're not perfect, aren't you in a worse state than you were? At least when you were trying to keep the law, you were doing what you could. And Paul says, no, you rebuild that structure. You, 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 you put yourself in even more trouble. And the fact is that when you're a Christian, you're still a sinner, but you're a forgiven sinner. And you're somebody in whom the life of, of Jesus, the risen life of Jesus, is at work. And bit by bit, from one degree of glory to another, as he says in 2 Corinthians, God is going to clean up your act, make you different, so that people gradually start more and more to see Jesus in you. At least that's the theory of how it should work. And you look at uh, some aging Christians and I speak as a man of 71, young people, and you know, uh, you look at the lives that some older Christians lead and you begin to realize that, uh, you know, they're, they're spiteful, they're vindictive, they're self-obsessed, they're vain. And somehow when you get older, all of the things that you've never quite dealt with in your life come out and, and, and magnify themselves. 
And there are older Christians I know as well who are just the opposite of that. They're just lovely to be with. They're fantastic. And it's obvious that they have allowed the Spirit of God to work in their hearts over years and years so that the rough edges have been worn off and the, 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 the life of Jesus is shining through them clearer and clearer as they reach the end of the road. That's what we want to be like, isn't it? Forgiven sinners, but sinners who are moving from one degree of glory to another and who will one day be transformed into the likeness of Jesus in an instant when we see his face. Third uh, section of it is verses 19 to 20, the famous bit, the exchanged life. We died with Christ, now his life and all of the riches that God can give us in Jesus are there for us. Um, and the fourth final thing is just simply the, 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 the key point of this whole passage, isn't it? The key summary of everything that Paul wants to happen. Don't ever despise or replace the grace of God. He's got a lot more to say about that, and you've got uh, uh, four more chapters to go, but he's already made his main point. This is what it's about. Don't ever despise God's grace, because that's what everything depends on. That's about all I've got to say tonight. Shall we just pray together before I hand back to John, just for a second? Let's do that. So, Heavenly Father, we've looked uh, through six very difficult, tangled up verses of your word. And I just pray that as we've tried to untangle them, we've done that properly. <laughs> There's so much more in them that we haven't talked about tonight. But uh, if that is the basis of what Paul was getting so het up about, help us not to miss the insistence and the sheer desperation in his tone. As he says, look, this is absolutely foundational. It must not be set aside. Help us to be people who live by grace, not just by rules. Always feels safer to humans to live by rules and measure ourselves against them. But you know that's not the way that uh, you want it to be. You just want us to give us to Jesus, give ourselves to Jesus again and again, day by day, yielding our members as instruments of righteousness, our arms, our legs, our thoughts, our minds, everything we've got, so that you can take them and use them for yet another 24 hours. Help us do that. And may the life of Jesus Christ, which is there in us, shine out so powerfully that people around us see it and are convinced that something has happened to us, which is not just us being good, but is a visitation from something supernatural that we could never do by ourselves. Make our lives speak so loudly of Jesus that we hardly have to use words. We ask this for your name's sake. Amen. <laughs>